began to live with me and got the third degree. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> probably more truth than poetry in that. That's great. I got in to hear uh, most of what Walt said, and uh, he was right smack dab on, on target. So let us take to heart what, uh, what he was sharing. Uh, you know, we're responsible. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Uh, one of the best illustrations I can think of is if, if you and I are running around out here and it's 20 below zero, in January, and we're running around in our running shorts, and our arm is turning blue. You don't say "stupid arm turning blue," you know, "stupid head." Send message to feet. Carry blue arm in warm building. <laughs> you know, God always holds the head accountable, and uh, and uh, we can't. We can delegate activities, uh, but we cannot delegate ultimate responsibility. And boy, that's something if we, uh, if we don't get a hold of, the game's over. And uh, so let's make application. Uh, in a loving, gracious, caring, Christ-honoring way, but make application. One of, did you tell him my favorite story about the 80-year-old who couldn't see the golf ball down the fairway and he got this 90-year-old spotter because the 90-year-old had eyesight like a hawk and the 80-year-old said, are you ready? And the 90-year-old guy said, yes. And bang, he drove the ball down the fairway. He said, didn't you see it? And the 90-year-old guy said, yes. He said, where'd it go? He said, I can't remember. <laughs> So, uh, you know, have a little, uh, most of you got pads, and that's good, because uh, you're going to get home, and your wife or somebody's going to say, what did he say? And say, well, this is what he said, right? And uh, the man that started the Navigator Ministry, whose picture's up over the door there, said, uh, used to teach us that uh, the palest ink is stronger than the strongest memory. So jot down some thoughts, jot down the scriptures anyway. And uh, what I want to cover this morning, and I hope we can dialogue rather than just a monologue, is uh, five things. I'll tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'll tell you, then I'll tell you what I told you, and we'll answer questions as we go along. First of all, definition. Secondly, that the God of the universe is a servant God. Thirdly, God's desire for you and me is to be servants. Fourthly, some evidences or some manifestations of a servant heart. And uh, fifthly, a couple of the deadliest enemies of a servant attitude in the heart and life of a Christian. So first of all, a definition of a servant. To render assistance, to help, to be of use. Webster says that a help is to make it easier for a person to do something, to supply another with whatever is necessary to accomplish his ends or to relieve his wants. The whole idea of servanthood focuses upon others their needs, their desires, their wants. 
And when we think of being a servant, the immediate focus is outward, not inward. Contrary to so much of our culture today. You know, I want to be me. Do it my way. Diametrically opposed to what's on God's heart for you and me. Focusing on other people. Now why, why is it important? Well, probably the most important reason is that God, the Creator, the Lord, the King of Kings, is, is a servant God. Now, I suppose if, if any God in the universe had the right and the privilege not to be a servant, it would be the true God. The one who spoke the word and flung all of the stars into the universe. The one whose power is absolutely limitless. If anybody didn't have to be a servant, it would be he. But if anyone is a servant, it is, it is he. When God created woman, the word that's used in Genesis chapter 2, a helper, a suitable helper, a servant, if you will, in the, the right sense of the word for Adam, the, the Hebrew word is, is ezer, E-Z-E-R. A, a helper, someone to come alongside and to complement and fulfill and, and meet his needs and to care for him and to cherish him. God created an easer. And that word easer is used in the Old Testament 18 times. But 13 of the 18 times that the word is used in the Old Testament refers to God. God uses the same word in his scriptures applying to himself that he used under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he created a suitable helper for Adam. God is a servant God. Two New Testament passages which reaffirm this, which are very familiar, are found in Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 43. Jesus says to the disciples, So shall it not be among you. Whosoever would be great among you shall be your minister or your servant. Whosoever of you would be chiefest shall be servant of all for even. And he uses himself as an illustration of this divine principle. The Son of Man did not come to be ministered to, but to minister. He came to serve. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one by whom every atom in every molecule coheres in the entire universe, 
by the word of his power, he came, he said, to serve. The other passage is Philippians chapter 2, equally familiar. Beginning with verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery, a thing to be grasped, to be equal with God, although he was and is and, and always will be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. I, I greatly appreciated this summer Dr. James Boyce, a senior minister at, uh, at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, spoke here for two week-long conferences. And uh, one of the things that Dr. Boyce pointed out to us this summer, which was very helpful to me, was the, the contrast. There, there are five steps downward which Jesus Christ intentionally took, constantly humbling himself, moving into this role of, of being a servant for you and for me. And he contrasted it with Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, where Satan has five steps. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And God's response to Satan was to cast him down. And God's response to Jesus Christ was to highly exalt him. And God is totally committed, gentlemen, when we say, I will, I will, I will, God is committed to say, you won't. And when we say, I will serve, I'll step down, I'll back off, I'll lift the load, I'll be more Christ-like, God says, right on. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. A beautiful contrast. Five steps in Isaiah in God's response. Five steps in Philippians in God's response. He took upon him the form of a servant. God the Father, God the Son, a servant God. And it follows then that he expects you and me to be the same way. To make the same choices. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. It's, it's for Jesus' sake it's for his name, his honor, his glory that, that we serve one another. I got to thinking about that. <clears throat> if, if I were called the pastor of a New Testament church, 
the Corinthians wouldn't have been the top of the list. Uh, I could see myself being part of the pastoral team, maybe of the Philippian church or the Ephesian church. But the Corinthians, that was a grim congregation. They had problems. And Paul says to the Corinthians, we're your servants for Jesus' sake. It didn't have anything to do with the worthiness of the Corinthians. And it's something that you and I have to process as we think about our role as servants. It doesn't have to do, do these people deserve my service? The answer is often no. Do they deserve my time and energy and whatever? Well, maybe not. The scripture doesn't come across and say, serve these people when they deserve it. I'm not sure the Corinthians were all that deserving. Now, they were saints and brothers in Christ. Had great potential, maybe for that reason. Paul says it's for Jesus' sake that you and I are servants. The other passage, and I'd like you to turn with me to John 13, God's desire for you and me to be servants. The familiar passage in John 13, of course, for many of us is the new command I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you. By this shall men know that you're my disciples. Not that you all sign the same doctrinal statement or attend the same church, but that you love one another. But we've got to start in verse 1 to understand the context of this desire for, on God's part for you and me to be servants. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Love, by definition, is unending. The person who says, I don't love you anymore, never loved you in the first place. Love is both the fruit of the Spirit and an act of the will. It's not either or, it's both and. And he chose to love them right down to the end, to the finish. And so he rises from supper and lays aside his garments, wraps himself in the towel of a servant, and begins to wash their dirty feet. Now in the Roman Empire, not even a slave had to wash his servant's feet. Washing someone else's feet, even for a slave, was voluntary. One of the reasons you and I find it difficult to, to serve other people is that we don't want to take off our garments. We don't want to lay aside our, our robes. And you and I, in our culture, in our society, where winning is everything, 
and where it's not just competition, but it's coming in first. We, we find it difficult to stop long enough and take off our robes. And we wear a lot of robes, the robes of busyness, the robes of, of being important, the robes of our position, our title, our rank. In the, someone referred to the military. In the military, it's very simple. You have little stars and, and, and bars and birds and leaves and all kinds of happy little things pinned all over you. <laughs> and uh, they tell the story of the, the airman who was walking down a sidewalk at night on an airbase and stopped another person coming toward him and said, Hey, buddy, do you have a light? So the other person stopped and took out a cigarette lighter and and lighted the airman's cigarette. Only in the light of the cigarette lighter, the airman saw the star in the collar of Buddy. And he said, oh, sir, excuse me. And the general officer wisely said, just be glad I'm not a second lieutenant. <laughs> <laughs> Second lieutenants find it harder to cope with being called buddy. <laughs> but we, gentlemen, we don't want to take off our robes. We, we can't slow down long enough to disrobe emotionally and psychologically and in order to to be approachable, in order to actually get involved with other people's dirty feet. And one of the reasons we struggle with, with servanthood is just we've got this interstate Christianity. Boy, we are zooming down the evangelical interstate, you know, 55 and a little above, you know. And we duck off for a quick Wendy's on Sunday morning and back on the interstate, spiritually. Chuck Swindoll tells the story of one of his daughters coming and said, Dad, I don't want to fuck you. And he said, well, sweetheart, talk slowly. She said, okay, Dad, but you listen slowly. You know, so much of our nonverbal communication is, I got three minutes, what's on your heart? <laughs> you know. We, you know, we do that with our wives, with our children. We don't slow down, we don't disrobe. Jesus disrobed. Then he took the towel of a servant. Then he got involved with their dirty feet. He's going to be dead in less than 24 hours. And the night before he dies, he's involved with other people's dirty feet. Now if you knew you were going to be dead tomorrow morning by 11.30, how would you spend tonight? On the telephone. You would run up a phone bill that no one would believe. Not even the executor of your estate. 
slow down, disrobe, wrap up in a towel. Dirty feet means problems, heartaches, troubles. It means availability. And Jesus Christ said in this passage, in John chapter 13, in verse, uh, beginning with uh, verse 13, you call me Master, you call me Lord, you say well, that is exactly what I am. I am your Master, I am your Lord. If I then, your Lord and Master, boy, impact, repetition, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, gentlemen, when the King of Kings, the Lord of the universe, says you ought to do this to you and me, he does not approach it like, well, if you can fit it into your schedule. When God says ought, God means ought. See, the essence of love is not, uh, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. The essence of love is, is vulnerability. The essence of love is, is disrobing and involvement with other people, other people's dirty feet. And I don't know about you, but my experience is people rarely have dirty feet between nine and five. People have dirty feet at the craziest hours. But a servant is going to be involved with other people's dirty feet because our Master and Lord said we ought to. Now, I know there are groups that actually have a, a ceremony in their worship of washing one another's dirty feet, and I think that's beautiful. But I think it means more than that. Servant means to make it easier for someone to do something, to supply another with whatever is necessary to accomplish his goals. God is a servant. And our Master and Lord said, we ought to be involved. Do what I have done to you. Well, what are some manifestations, evidences. I just want to touch on on three very briefly. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. So one implication for you and for me is to go about doing good and bring healing to people who need healing. Maybe psychological healing, maybe financial healing, maybe emotional healing, maybe marital healing, uh, maybe legal healing. But let's commit ourselves to go about healing people's legitimate needs. 
Now, I know there are illegitimate needs. There are demands that are unreasonable. I don't think the Bible teaches that we should merely be doormats over which the entire human race tramples back and forth willy-nilly. But there's a basic mindset. My basic question is, does this need have my name on it? It might not. There are times when I don't get involved. There are times when I cushion myself and distance myself, having given it thought and prayer and realized that that need simply doesn't have my name on it. That's fine. Jesus was that way and, and it says in Luke chapter 4, multitudes came together to hear and to be healed and he withdrew himself into the wilderness. And there are times when we must withdraw ourselves if we're to be Christ-like. Understand that. But our basic mindset is, does this one have my name on it? And at least we stop long enough to ask the Lord for his guidance and direction before automatically involving or not involving ourselves. He went about doing good, healing. I think another implication of, of servanthood has to do with hospitality. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 says that you and I are to be given the hospitality. I think that means bed and breakfast, for starters. Uh, this weekend, <clears throat> Buzzy and I were, were hosting a, a special a guest here in the city who was uh, speaking in one of the churches. And uh, we were asked to provide bed and breakfast and uh, some other meals. And the doorbell rang Saturday and this lovely lady arrived and, and uh, another lady had brought her. So I thought, well, that's very nice. So we, I went out to the car and I got the baggage for the, the guest who was going to be in our home for Saturday, Sunday, and Monday morning and, and carried the stuff in. And the lady who was driving the car walked in with her suitcase. I thought, oh, are you staying here too? Oh, yes. Oh, how nice. <laughs> Terrific. No big deal. We had space. I just didn't happen to have that in my computer. No one had told me. Uh, we we're going to have two instead of one. But we've done that a lot. So have you. Be given to hospitality. Open up your home. I don't know what that means in your particular context because I don't know your home, your family, your kids, and so on. But the principle is valid. If we're going to serve people, It'll mean very often bed and breakfast and sometimes with not a lot of lead time. I think the third 
personal practical application has to do with making other people look good. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. Just before Paul speaks about Jesus being a servant, he says in verses 3 and 4, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. In lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I think the idea is exclusively on his own things. If you and I are going to be authentic servants of Jesus Christ, we're going to commit ourselves to making other people look good. Make other people successful. Our basic commitment is that if I dedicate time and money and energy and resources and strength to see to it that other people are successful, whatever that means, spiritually or financially or socially or emotionally or maritally, that God commits himself to see that all my needs are met. I've got God on my side. If I am committed to the success of other people, But our culture, gentlemen, is dig and scratch and get all you can, can all you get, poison the rest, whatever it takes. (laughs) Whatever it takes. And that is diametrically opposed to the revealed will of God for you and me as Christians. Look not every man exclusively on his own interests, but every man also on the interests of other people. In fact, if you have to make a choice, opt for the other guy. How can I help you succeed? Now I'm closing two deadly AIDS viruses to having a servant heart. Two things that will kill it, absolutely destroy it. And in principle, we've already touched on them, but I want to focus on them. One is a, is a lordship attitude. It is pride disguised often as leadership. Peter says in chapter 5, in the first four verses, not as being lords over God's inheritance. Leadership does not mean lordship, but being examples to the flock. Ultimately, there are only three things that you and I can do ethically in the life of another human being is teach, pray, and be an example. That's all Jesus Christ did. That's the Alpha and the Omega of authentic leadership, influence, teaching, praying, being a model. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.24 to the church, even though he was an apostle, even though he'd founded the church, we do not have dominion over your faith. We are helpers of your joy. In an attitude of, of lordship or superiority, pride disguises leadership, will kill a servant heart. It'll come through. 90% of communication is nonverbal. And people will, will spot it just like that. The other thing is a sectarian attitude. Luke 9, 49 and 50. Master, we saw one casting out devils in your name. And we forbade him because he followed not with us. When you read Luke 9, if you don't laugh and cry, you're not reading it. Cry because of the absolute blindness, at least at this point in time, on the part of the disciples, the twelve. Laugh because it's so ludicrous. Because in the context... After Peter, James, and John come down off the Mount of Transfiguration, the bottom of the hill, there is a grieving father with a child in great need. And the man had brought his child to Jesus' disciples to cast out the demon. And the scriptures are very explicit. The man says to Jesus, they could not. That's tremendous because in verse 1 of Luke 9, he gave them authority over demons. They went out and cast them out. What happened? I don't know. I don't have yet an adequate understanding of the scriptures. What happened between verse 1 and verse, about verse 23 in there? Why did they have the power in verse 1 they didn't have in verse 23? I'm not sure. But at any rate, the disciples could not cast out the demon. And so, how do they respond to their spiritual impotence? They go around telling other people who are casting out demons to quit. Brilliant! We can't do it, you stop it. That's exactly what the Scripture teaches. Oh, it's great. He's not part of our team. He's not a member of our group. He's not flying our flag. He's not a member of our church, our denomination, our whatever. Sectarianism. Deadly. It destroys any environment of authentic service. It doesn't matter whether he's flying our flag. What matters is, is he serving God? Is he helping people? But if they're not flying our flag, if they don't have our theological stripe painted across their, their face, how often are we like dear John? 
Quit doing that. Pride, sectarianism. It's the same coin, just two faces. And if that's where we find ourselves, why? Let's go to First John 1, 9 and say, Lord, forgive us and cleanse us and change our hearts. Being a servant, helping, focuses on meeting others' needs. God is a servant God. Our Lord and Master said, you ought to be involved. And it means healing. It means hospitality. It means a lot of things. It means making other people successful. And two things that will kill it, a wrong understanding of leadership, Or a sectarian spirit. We know what to do with that. So, let me pause. You may have a question, comment, observation, complaint. And we'll turn it back over to Mark to set up all the workshops. Yes, sir. Differentiation between headship and leadership Well, no, headship and leadership, I think, are one and the same thing. It's When the Bible says in Corinthians 11, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. There is no remote suggestion that, that God is superior to Christ. They are absolutely, in every way, equal as persons. But within the Godhead, they have a different role. So when the Bible says man is the head of woman, we are, as persons, absolutely equal in every way, but we have a different role. And so it says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ. Christ is the prophet, the priest, the king. He's the communicator. He's the one who prays. He's the one who leads. Now, Isaiah 40, verse 11 says he leads those who are with young gently. Genesis 33, 14, Jacob says, I will lead softly according to the needs of the children. So, if we are Christ-like, we lead gently, we lead softly, but we lead. So, leadership and headship, I think, are, are synonymous at that point. Right. We teach, we teach, we pray, and we're an example. But somebody has to vote. And so you discuss with your wife and you, you share with her. You read Luke 14. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. So there's, there's tension in the scriptures. It says, Hate your father and mother. But Ephesians says, honor your father and mother. There's two H's. Well, you want me to hate them or honor them? Yes. The uh, same with wife. Hate your wife. First Peter 3, honor your wife. Well, you want me to hate her or honor her? Yes. 
Okay. Now in the Luke 14 passage, it does not say father, mother, wife, husband. The word husband isn't in there. Because God has no independent guidance in the arena of discipleship and ministry for married women. So, somebody has to vote. Anything with two heads is a monstrosity. Anything with no heads is a monstrosity. And so, I talk to Buzzy, I chat with her, I counsel with her, I benefit from her wisdom and her intuition and her perspective, and then I decide. Buzzy's my wife, by the way, for those of you who don't know me. <laughs> Just so I clarify that. Good. Any other comments, questions, clarification? Absolutely. God holds the head accountable, just as he did with Adam. You know, when Eve sinned, God didn't say anything. Adam sinned, God made the scene, said, fast, what have you been up to? And then he said, you know, the woman thou gavest me. You know, two problems here. You know, you and my wife. (laughs) And, you know, and God said, time out. You know, don't the woman thou gavest me, me, George. Uh, yeah. So there's, see, in Adam all sinned. When the problem is, is God and man, in Romans, it's Adam sinned. When it comes to church government, it's the woman was deceived in Timothy. Timothy's a horizontal book. Romans is a vertical book. Perfect balance in the scripture. Yes, sir. Um, this is kind of a tough one to ask. Um, well, Walt's here. He can answer it. <laughs> it may relate also to what, what Walt was saying, but um, <clears throat> what we've been talking about is uh, servanthood and also the um, uh, husband as head of the family. Right. And I think in a lot of cases, uh, uh, the man... Well, I make some comments, very unlikely that I'll clarify. Confused, perhaps. Yeah, I. the basic responsibility that I have is for my own wife. I think the Corinthians passage, Corinthians 11, is not referring to husband and wife. I think it's talking about man and woman. And in the larger sphere in society, man has a role of leadership. And in that sense, every woman ought to have some man. It may be her own father. It may be her pastor. Uh, every unmarried woman, pardon me. Every unmarried woman ought to have a head, a godly head. 
who would be a, a married man, an elder, someone in the body to whom she would look if, if she can't do it with her own father. I feel that's that's scriptural. But I realize that there are people who don't feel that way and that there's an awful lot of commotion out there. But most of the people who don't feel that way, I think, are in, in deep water spiritually, in trouble, because they're not looking to an elder to give them. Not to play junior Holy Spirit in their life. Not to overshadow their own conscience and individuality and the priesthood of the unmarried woman believer. But just to give that shelter and that cover and that counsel. Uh, And I've also seen it, and Buzzy and I have functioned that way with some uh, godly unmarried women who are uh, a long way away from their parents and so on. And we function as counselors and advisors. Buzzy actually spends most of the time, but I'm there as an elder brother. And I think it's healthy. Yes, sir. Uh, address, if you would, uh, the uh, ramifications of, of employing uh, a, another man's wife as a secretary or something Oh, well, if she is in your employ with the blessing of her husband, the approval of her own husband, and still functioning under the umbrella of his leadership, and her role is simply from nine to five to type and answer the phone and serve you and meet your legitimate needs, and there is no hanky panky. I don't. I don't see any problem with it, okay. because she's still functioning with his blessing and approval. Now, putting uh, into play what Walt was talking about, the basic root problem: the man uh, releasing his responsibility there toward uh, instructing his wife as to where her fulfillment should be. Uh, you know, he has given his blessing to her now to enter the workplace. Uh, if I'm going to serve a wall for all of you. Now, uh, uh, she is in the employee now of a Christian organization. Where do we fit in? You know, what is our responsibility? Oh, the husband is always fully, completely, 24 hours a day responsible. She is simply providing a service with his blessing to that organization. And I, I okay, so she is serving her husband through that organization. Yes. Rightfully yeah. or wrongfully. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully not wrongfully. If, but if he's, if he is not functioning properly in his relationship to his own wife, then I think maybe you'd want to reconsider whether you'd have her work for you. You might be doing a disservice to her or, or him or both by using her in your service as an employee if that is also at the same time conflicting or mitigating against 
her marriage. Yeah, I, I would at least reconsider whether or not you ought to have her work for you without his blessing, the blessing of her own husband. At least question, but Walt, do you want to come in on that? <laughs> you won't touch that with a 10-foot pole or an 11-foot Italian. Great. Well, listen, thanks for your kindness. Let me turn the, uh, the mic over to who's got Mark. Mark. 